Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 25, entitled John McBride, Maud Gone, Sean McBride, and Roger Casement. I hope you like this, and the outro to this episode is an original song entitled The Poet, His Muse, and Foxy Jack. Please share this on social media. And if you wish, you can become a patron by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. All the horrors of the constant daily executions in May 1916, brought censure from many countries, particularly America. At home, the people, in their grief, sang the words of the ballot, another martyr for old Ireland, another murder for the crown. Others, who were on the army council of the IRB, but had not signed the proclamation of the Irish Republic, were also taken out and shot. Major John McBride, perhaps in revenge for fighting against the British in South Africa in the Boer War. He had emigrated to South Africa in 1896 and became a prominent supporter of the Boer cause and served on the Irish Transvaal Executive. While there, he organised and formed an Irish Brigade with 500 men, which he later commanded in the Second Boer War. They had some small success against the British. Back in Ireland, however, in 1899, a committee was formed to lend support to the Irish Brigade, presided over by Miss Maud Gunn, at which she called for support for the gallant Major John McBride. John McBride, 1868-1916, was born at the Key Westport, County Mayo, to Patrick McBride, a shopkeeper and trader, and the former Hanora Gill. A plaque marks the building on the Westport Keys where he was born. His red hair and long nose led him to be given the nickname Foxy Jack. He joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood and was associated with Michael Cusick in the early days of the Gaelic Athletic Association. He also joined the Celtic Literary Society, through which he became known to Arthur Griffith, who was to remain a friend and influence throughout his life. Beginning in 1893, McBride was termed a dangerous nationalist by the British government. In 1896, he went to the United States on behalf of the IRB. In the same year, he returned and emigrated to South Africa. The Irish Transvaal Brigade became known as McBride's Brigade and was first commanded by an Irish-American, Colonel John Blake, an ex-US cavalry officer. McBride recommended Blake as commander since he himself had no military experience. The brigade was given official recognition by the Boer government with the commissions of the brigade's officers signed by State Secretary F.W. Wrights. McBride was commissioned with the rank of major in the Boer army and given Boer citizenship. With a brigade of 500 Irish and Irish-Americans, they fought the British. 
Often these Irish commandos were fighting opposite such Irish regiments as the Royal Dublin Fusiliers and the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. From the hills around the besieged town of Ladysmith to the plains of the Orange Free State, MacBride's brigade were assigned to accompany and guard one of the great French Crusot fortress guns or Long Toms of Commandant Trichard's Transvaal State Army and afterwards they fought in the Battle of Colenso. A second Irish brigade was organised by Arthur Lynch. The arrival in the Irish camp of an Irish-American ambulance corps bolstered MacBride's brigade. Michael Davitt, who had resigned as an MP, visited MacBride in South Africa. When Colonel Blake was injured at Ladysmith, MacBride had to take sole command of the brigade. In Ireland, pro-Boer feeling informed by Arthur Griffith and Maud Gon formed the most popular and most fervent of the European pro-Boer movements. However, more than 16,000 Irishmen fought for the British against the Boers. When MacBride became a citizen of the Transvaal, the British considered that as an Irishman and citizen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, he had given aid to the enemy. After the war, he travelled to Paris, where Maud Gon lived. In 1903, he married her to the disapproval of many, including W.B. Yeats, who had previously proposed to her. The following year, their son, Sean McBride, was born. Their marriage failed and the couple could not agree on custody of Sean. Maud instituted divorce proceedings in Paris. No divorce was given, but in a separation agreement, Maud won custody of the baby until age 12. The father got visiting rights of one month each summer. McBride returned to Dublin and never saw his son again. Anthony J. Jordan argues that McBride was a much maligned man in the divorce proceedings. He posits that on the merit of W.B. Yeats believing Maud Gunn's accusations against her husband, successive biographers of Yeats have treated them as factual, ignoring the verdict of the Parisian Divorce Court, which found MacBride innocent. Donald Fallon, MacBride's recent biographer, quotes the Pope Paul Durkin, the grandson of Joseph MacBride and Eileen Wilson, as believing that MacBride was unquestionably defamed and lays much of the blame on the people in the Yeats Maud Gone industry. About 40 years after the marriage had ended, Maud herself attributed the breakdown of the marriage to John's loneliness and drink problem in Paris during her frequent trips to Ireland without him. He did not know a word of French and must often have had been very lonely as my work kept me much in Ireland. After returning permanently from Paris to Dublin in 1905, John McBride joined the Irish Nationalists in preparing for an insurrection. Because he was so well known to the British, the leaders thought it wise to keep him outside their secret military group planning a rising. As a result, he happened to find himself in the midst of the rising without notice. He was in Dublin early on Easter Monday morning to meet his brother, Dr. Anthony McBride, who was arriving from Westport to be married on the Wednesday. The Major walked up Grafton Street and saw Thomas McDonough in uniform and leading his troops. He offered his services and was appointed second in command at the Jacobs factory. After the rising, McBride was court-martialed under the Defence of the Relim Act and subsequently executed by a firing squad 
in Dublin's Kilmainham Jail. He was executed on the 5th of May 1916. Facing the British firing squad, he said he did not wish to be blindfolded, adding, I have looked down the muzzles of so many guns in the South African war to fear death, and now please carry out your sentence. He is buried in the cemetery at Arbor Hill Prison in Dublin. Yeats wrote an ambivalent eulogy in his poem, Easter 1916. This other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vain, glorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart. Yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Maud Gone wrote to Yeats, No, I don't like your poem. It isn't worthy of you, and above all, it isn't worthy of its subject. As for my husband, he has entered eternity by the great door of sacrifice so that praying for him, I can also ask for his prayers. Maud Gaughan, 1866-1953, was an English-born Irish Republican, revolutionary, suffragette and actress. Of Anglo-Irish descent, she was won over to Irish nationalism by the plight of evicted people in the land wars. She actively agitated for home rule and then for the Republic, declared in 1916. During the 1930s, she was a founding member of the Social Credit Party. In 1897, along with Yeats and Arthur Griffith, she had organised protests against Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. In the same year, she joined the Roman Catholic Church. She refused many marriage proposals from Yeats, not only because he was unwilling to convert to Catholicism, but because she viewed him as insufficiently radical in his nationalism, and also because she believed his unrequited love for her had been a boon for his poetry, and that the world should thank her for never having accepted his proposals. Gone remained very active in Paris in 1913. She established L'Irlande Libre, a French newspaper. She wanted Cumin to be considered seriously. Her idea was to get affiliation with the English Red Cross and wrote to Geneva to gain an international profile for the new nationalist organisation. In 1918, she was arrested in Dublin and imprisoned in Holloway Prison, London, for six months. During the War of Independence, she organised relief, and during the Civil War, she formed the Women's Prisoners' Defence League to assist Republican prisoners and their dependents. She was arrested and imprisoned in 1923, where she went on hunger strike and was released. She published an autobiography covering the period of her early life entitled A Servant of the Queen, in which she wrote, I have always hated war, and am by nature and philosophy a pacifist. But it is the English who are forcing war on us, and the first principle of war is to kill the enemy. Maud Gaughan died in Klonsky, Dublin, aged 86, on the 27th of April, 1953, and is buried in Glasnevin Cemetery, Dublin. As leader of Clan Napublicta Publicta in 1948, Maud Gon's son, Sean McBride, nominated Dennis Ireland to Shannadairn. Dennis Ireland, a northerner, shared McBride's mother's enthusiasm for C.H. Douglas's distributive philosophy. Like Maud Gon, 
Dennis Ireland argued that social credit or national dividend payments should be paid to citizens and were essential to redress the otherwise chronic lag in the machine age between their capacity to consume and the productive capacity of industry. In a world of artificial scarcity, the alternative, Ireland suggested, was fascism. Sean McBride, 1904-1988, was an Irish clan of public politician who served as Minister for External Affairs from 1948 to 1951, leader of Clan Publicta from 1946 to 1965, and Chief of Staff of the IRA from 1936 to 1937. He served as a TD, or Chuck de Dola, from 1947 to 1957. Rising from a domestic Irish political career, he founded or participated in many international organisations of the 20th century, including the United Nations, the Council of Europe and Amnesty International. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1974, the Lenin Peace Prize for 1975-1976 and the UNESCO Silver Medal for Service in 1980. Before returning to Dublin in 1927, where he became the IRA's Director of Intelligence, Sean McBride worked as a journalist in Paris and London. Soon after his return, he was arrested and charged with the murder of politician Kevin O'Higgins, who had been assassinated near his home in Booterstown, County Dublin. McBride was able to prove, however, that he was on his way back to Ireland at the time, as he was able to call Unionist-turned-common-the-gale politician Brian Cooper whom he had met on the boat travelling home as a witness. He was then charged with being a subversive and interned in Mountjoy Prison. Towards the end of the 1920s, after many supporters had left to join Fianna Fáil, some members of the IRA started pushing for a more left-wing agenda. After the IRA Army Council voted down the idea, Sean McBride launched a new movement, Sayer Era, in English, Free Ireland, in 1931. Although it was a non-military organisation, Sayre Era was declared unlawful, along with the IRA, Cumann and nine other bodies. McBride, meanwhile, became the security service's number one target. In 1936, the IRA's chief of staff, Moss Toomey, was sent to prison for three years. He was replaced by Sean McBride. At the time, the movement was in a state of disarray, with conflicts between several factions and personalities. Tom Barry was appointed Chief of Staff to head up a military operation against the British, an action which McBride did not agree with. In 1937, Sean McBride was called to the bar. He then resigned from the IRA when the Constitution of Ireland was enacted later that year. As a barrister, McBride frequently defended IRA prisoners of the state but was unsuccessful in stopping the execution in 1944 of Charlie Currens, convicted of killing Garda detective Dennis O'Brien in 1942. In 1946, during the inquest into the death of Sean McCaughey, McBride embarrassed the authorities by forcing them to admit that the conditions in Portleash prison were inhumane. In his later years, McBride lived in his mother's home, Roebuck House in Clonsky, Dublin, that had served as a meeting place for many years for Irish nationalists, as well as living in Paris, where he grew up with his mother. 
and enjoyed strolling along the boyhood paths while strolling along through the Centre of Pompidou Museum in 1979 and happening upon an exhibit for Amnesty International, he whispered to a colleague, Amnesty, you know, was one of my children. In 1978, he received the Golden Plate Award of the American Academy of Achievement. Sean McBride died in Dublin on the 15th of January 1988, 11 days before his 84th birthday. He is buried in Glasnevin Cemetery, in a grave with his mother and wife, Kathleen Bolfin, who died in 1976. On the occasion of MacBride's death, the African National Congress, or ANC, Oliver Tambo stated, Sean MacBride will always be remembered for the concrete leadership he provided to the liberation movement and people of Namibia and South Africa. Driven by his own personal and political insight arising out of the cause of national freedom in Ireland, our debt to him can never be repaid. When the First World War broke out in 1914, the Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin, 1870-1924, was tucked away in a remote lodge in the Tatra Mountains in Poland. It was the latest in a series of exiles from his native country, which took him across Europe. To Lenin, war meant the ruling classes of opposing nations sending working men to kill each other, men who should instead stand united against their true common enemy, the capitalist bosses of Europe. A socialist could never agree to such a thing as war, and Lenin and his fellow revolutionaries around Europe had agreed to oppose it firmly. Lenin got a nasty shock on the 5th of August 1914, a few days after Germany declared war on Russia. A local activist who was staying with him in the lodge brought him a copy of a Polish newspaper. The newspaper reported that the socialists in the German parliament had agreed to the war. Socialists in Britain and France did the same, and Lenin was furious. Lenin's opposition to the war wasn't just about the horror of mass killing. It came from a theory of capitalism. Lenin was a thinker as well as a practical revolutionary, a successor of Marx, who'd said that capitalism involved contradictions that in time would lead to its collapse. Lenin took Marx's ideas forward. He said that the capitalist system itself caused the conflict between nations that led eventually to war. Lenin thought that the three trends of capitalism, economic interconnection, monopoly capitalism, and imperialism were linked. European countries fought for areas of the world that hadn't already been invaded. Much of what was left was in the unexplored parts of Africa. By the start of the First World War in 1914, the European empires had taken control of a third of the landmass of the earth. A few years after the start of the war, Lenin slipped back into Russia, in disguise, and led a revolution that established the world's first communist state, inspired by the ideas of Karl Marx. The British Secret Service in Ireland were aware on the 16th of April 1916 that a German vessel, Odd, and two submarines were approaching the Irish coast 
and they were on high alert. When Roger Casement landed, he was subsequently arrested at Bannerstrand in County Kerry, from where he was quickly taken to London under heavy escort, fearing an attempt to free him. But no such rescue bid was tried, and Casement was charged, tried, convicted, and sentenced to hang on the 3rd of August, 1916. In Africa, as a young man, Casement first worked for commercial interests before joining the British Colonial Service. In 1891, he was appointed as a British consul, a profession he followed for more than 20 years. Influenced by the Boer War and his investigation into colonial atrocities against indigenous peoples, Casement grew to mistrust imperialism. After retiring from consular service in 1913, he became more involved with Irish republicanism. During World War I, he made efforts to gain military aid from Germany for the 1916 Easter Rising that sought to gain Irish independence. Casement retired from the British Consular Service in the summer of 1913. In November of that year, he was among those who helped form the Irish Volunteers. He and Owen MacNeill, later the organisation's chief of staff, co-wrote the Volunteers' Manifesto. In July 1914, Casement journeyed to the United States to promote and raise money for the Volunteers from among the large and numerous Irish community there. Through his friendship with men such as Bulmer Hobson, a member both of the Volunteers and of the secret Irish Republican Brotherhood, Casement established connections with exiled Irish nationalists, particularly Clan na Gael. Elements of the suspicious clan did not trust Casement completely, as he was not a member of the IRB, and held views they considered too moderate, but others, such as John Quinn, regarded him as extreme. Devoy initially hostile to Casement for his part in conceding control of the Irish Volunteers to John Redmond, was won over in June 1914, and Joseph McGarrity, another clan leader, became devoted to Casement, and remained so from then on. The Hoth gun running in late July 1914, which Casement had helped to organise and finance, further enhanced his reputation. In August 1914, at the outbreak of World War I, Casement and John Devoy arranged a meeting in New York with the Western Hemisphere's top-ranking German diplomat, Count Bernstorff, to propose a mutually beneficial plan. If Germany would sell guns to the Irish revolutionaries and provide military leaders, the Irish would revolt against England, diverting troops and attention from the war with Germany. Casement and Devoy sent an envoy, Clan na Gael President John Kenny, to present their plan personally. Kenny, while unable to meet the German Emperor, did receive a warm reception from Flotto, the German ambassador to Italy, and from Prince Von Bulow. In October 1914, Casement sailed from Germany via Norway, travelling in disguise and seeing himself as an ambassador of the Irish nation. While the journey was his idea, Clan na Gael financed the expedition. During their stop in Christiania, his companion Adler Christensen was taken to the British legation, where a reward was allegedly offered if Casement were knocked on the head. British diplomat Mansfeld Finlay, in contrast, advised London that Christensen 
had implied that their relations were of an unnatural nature and that consequently he had great power over this man. Findlay provided no evidence to support this insinuation. Findlay's handwritten letter of 1914 is kept in University College Dublin and is viewable online. This letter, written on official notepaper by Minister Findlay at the British Legion in Oslo, offers to Christensen the sum of £5,000 plus immunity from prosecution and free passage to the United States in return for information leading to the capture of Roger Casement. That amount would be approximately £2.7 million sterling in today's currency. In November 1914, Casement negotiated a declaration by Germany which stated, The imperial government formally declares that under no circumstances would Germany invade Ireland with a view to its conquest or the overthrow of any native institutions in that country. Should the fortune of this great war that was not of Germany's seeking ever bring in its course German troops to the shores of Ireland, they would land there not as an army of invaders to pillage and destroy, but as the force of a government that is inspired by goodwill towards a country and people from whom Germany desires only national prosperity and national freedom. Casement spent most of his time in Germany seeking to recruit an Irish brigade from among more than 2,000 Irish prisoners of war taken in the early months of the war and held in the prison camp of Limburg and their Lan. His plan was that they would be trained to fight against Britain in the cause of Irish independence. American ambassador to Germany, James W. Gerard, mentioned the effort in his memoir, Four Years in Germany. The Germans collected all the soldier prisoners of Irish nationality in one camp at Limburg, not far from Frankfurt. These efforts were made to induce them to join the German army. The men were well treated and were often visited by Sir Roger Casement, who, working with the German authorities, tried to get these Irishmen to desert their flag and join the Germans. A few weaklings were persuaded by Sir Roger, who finally discontinued his visits after obtaining about 30 recruits, because the remaining Irishmen chased him out of the camp. On the 27th of December 1914, Casement signed an agreement in Berlin to this effect with Arthur Zimmermann in the German Foreign Office. 52 of the 2,000 prisoners volunteered for the brigade. Contrary to German promises, they received no training in the use of machine guns, which at the time were relatively new and unfamiliar weapons. In April 1916, Germany offered the Irish 20,000 Mossen Najant 1891 rifles, 10 machine guns and accompanying ammunition, but no German officers. It was a fraction of the quantity of arms Casement had hoped for, with no military expertise on offer. Casement did not learn about the Easter Rising until after the plan was fully developed. The German weapons never landed in Ireland. The Royal Navy intercepted the ship transporting them, a German cargo vessel named Libau, disguised as a Norwegian vessel Aud Norge. All the crew were German sailors, but their clothes and effects even the charts and books on the bridge were Norwegian. 
As John Devoy had either misunderstood or disobeyed Pierce's instructions that the arms were under no circumstances to land before Easter Sunday, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union members set to upload the arms under the command of Irish citizen army officer and trade unionist William Partridge were not ready. The British had intercepted German communications coming from Washington and suspected that there was going to be an attempt to land arms at Ireland, although they were not aware of the precise location. The arms ship, under Captain Carl Spindler, was apprehended by HMS Bluebell on the late afternoon of Good Friday. About to be escorted into Queenstown, present-day Cove, County Cork, on the morning of Saturday the 22nd of April 1916, Captain Spindler scuttled the ship by preset explosive charges. It now lies at a depth of 40 metres. Its surviving captain and crew became prisoners of war. One of the two carloads of volunteers who were supposed to meet Captain Spindler had crashed into the River Lawn many miles away at Ballycassan Pier, Kilorglan, resulting in the death of three or four occupants of the car. So there had been no possibility of an organised transfer of arms. Although Casement had been landed by the submarine U-19 in Banastrand that Friday, he was captured and arrested, without ever meeting the Lebu. Four months later he was tried and hanged as a traitor by the British government. Roger Casement's trial aroused media attention throughout the world. The British had earlier conferred on him a knighthood for his intervention and humanitarian concern in the Congo. By bringing an end certain distasteful atrocities practiced on the native workers in the rubber plantations operated by the Peruvian Rubber Company. As a result, he was a world-respected figure, and as such, a resolution was passed by the United States Senate requesting clemency, and a strong plea in mitigation was forwarded to the British Foreign Office. The prosecution was accused of discreditable conduct in editorials of the two leading British newspapers, The Times and The Manchester Guardian, but they countered by producing copies of the now infamous Black Diary in a vicious attempt to destroy him. The diaries detailed homosexual activities, and given prevailing views and existing laws on homosexuality, this material undermined support for clemency for casement. Debates have continued about these diaries. A handwriting comparison study in 2002 concluded that Casement had written the diaries, but this was still contested by some. It was suggested that the diary was faked deliberately. Chief of Police Sir Basil Thompson, reading a statement attributed to Sir Ernley Blackwell in a memorandum, said, Allow the law to take its course, and by judicious means to use these diaries to present Casement from attaining martyrdom. Casement's trial had brought such adverse criticism from around the world, forcing attention on the dozens of Irish volunteers still held without trial in British jails, that a decision was made to release the first batch in the month of December 1916 and the balance in July 1917. Among those released were William T. Cosgrave, who was in the South Dublin Union, and Joe McGrath, who was in the distillery at Marabone Lane with his brother Paddy. Both Cosgrave and Joe McGrath became prominent Irish politicians. Married Foxy Jack 